Luke chapter 23, this is the second half of lesson 175 on the crucifixion. So if you'd ask the Lord's blessing on our time together with me, please, let's bow our heads. Father, we do thank you for this day that you have given to us. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that you are a living God, a real God, a loving God, a gracious God, um, a God who just loves unconditionally and has revealed yourself to us in the person of your son, a God who gave his own life for us that we might live with you for all of eternity. So much we have to praise you and thank you for, for who you are and what you have done and how you express your life by giving your only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him would not perish but would have everlasting life. We thank you for this opportunity we have in a land where we can still assemble together freely for the sole purpose of getting to know you better through the life of your your son. And uh, may we never take that freedom for granted, Lord, because there may come a day when we don't have this privilege. Thank you that we each have our own personal copy of your your word, your love letter to us. and. And uh, just thank you again for all that you mean to us in our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have his will and way in the next hour and that your word would not return unto you void as you have promised. We pray in your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus taught about a new kind of love during his earthly ministry. Remember his fantastic sermon on the mount? Those of you who were with us about 50 years ago when we studied it. Remember, no, it wasn't that long. I do exaggerate. Remember when he said, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate your enemy. That was, that was what the average man on the street believed at that time. That you, it was okay to love your neighbor, but it was also okay to hate your enemy. That was the traditional teaching of the Jewish establishment. But Jesus went on to say, that's what you've heard, but I say unto you, what? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That is perhaps one of his greatest teachings on Christian love. You know, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in the believer the love of God so that we are able to love even those who do us harm and hurt us. Are you able to love those who have hurt you and persecuted you and despitefully used you? That is the uniqueness that separates us as Christians from the rest of the world. We are to pray for our enemies. Pray for those, even if they, you know, never repent, never ask for our forgiveness, we are to pray for them. The Lord had, remember, first of all, given the negative commandment that uh, we are not to return evil for evil. What happens if somebody smites us on one cheek? What are we to do as Christians? Turn around and jab them in the the back with a knife? No, we're to turn the other cheek. He said we're not to retaliate when we are wronged. And then he had gone a step further in giving the positive command to actually love the one who has inflicted the injury on us and the harm or the insult to us. The one who has deserted us, perhaps. It's not hard. It's not easy. But with the Holy Spirit within us, we're able to do it. And you know what? He not only taught well, but he walked his talk. And that is truly the trait of a great teacher. He did indeed walk his talk. Being God incarnate, do you know what the Lord Jesus could have done to those who were nailing him to the cross? He could have spoken just one word, or even not spoken a word, but thought one thought. And just as he had done just a few days earlier to a fruitless fig tree, every one of his enemies would have withered up and died right before his eyes. He could have um, done that to all the chief priests who were standing around mocking him. He could have called down one mighty angel to smite everyone there. Remember in the Old Testament days, one mighty angel came down, the days of Hezekiah, was it, and smote 185,000 Assyrians? He could have done that. He could have called down a giant thunderbolt. Actually, I have fun imagining all the things that, that he could have done as God incarnate. 
Um, he could have had an earthquake, you know, and swallowed everybody up into the earth. There's no limit what he could have done to those responsible for his crucifixion. But would that have matched his own teaching? No, it wouldn't have. And it would not have been submitting to his father's will as he had already surrendered to do. Where had he surrendered to do his father's will? In the Garden of Gethsemane, where the victory was really won. Actually, technically, the victory was really won in eternity past, wasn't it? But uh, if, he had, if he had done any of those things I speculated about, he would not have accomplished the purpose for which he came to earth. Why did Jesus come to earth in the first place? To die. To die for sinners. Exactly. He came to die for the sins of the world. So what did the Lord Jesus do while he was in the midst of that awful, humiliating position of being impaled to a wooden, a rugged wooden cross with seven to nine inch iron spikes? What did he do? He prayed, didn't he? He prayed for his enemies. He did exactly what he taught his followers to do. And Luke is the only one who told us what he did. It is from Luke alone that we have the Lord's first of seven sayings spoken from the cross. Now, you have to harmonize all four Gospels to know that he spoke seven times from the cross. If you were only studying Matthew's Gospel, you would only think that he had spoken once because he only gives us the Lord's middle saying, the fourth saying when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark only gives us that fourth saying as well. John gives us three of the Lord's sayings, but not, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He gives us three others, and Luke gives us three others. So three and three and then one from Mark and Matthew, it's the same one, that equals seven, seven times. But you have to put all four together to get it, four Gospels. Three of the Lord's sayings from the cross were spoken to his heavenly Father. Three of them were prayers, including this first one. And four of them were spoken to people. He addressed people. All right, but his first saying was in the form of a prayer. And what did he say? Look at Luke 23, 24. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you could see this in the Greek, in the original Greek, the verb tense of the, of, I mean, the tense of the verb said is given in the continuous tense, telling us that he repeatedly said it. Luke? What did I say? Oh, I said 24, I'm sorry. I was looking right at 34, you know. And I said, it's Luke 23, 34. You see the verb there said? It's continuously said. He repeated that prayer over and over again. And what's the first word of that verse? Verse 34, not 24. What's the first word? Huh? No, the first word of the whole verse is the word then. Then, you see, immediately links us to the preceding verse where we are told that when that crucifixion processional reached Calvary, they crucified Jesus with two malefactors. It was then, when they were doing that, that he spoke his words of prayer. And they were not spoken to those who were killing him. They were spoken, as I just said, to his heavenly Father for those who were killing him. Because his whole life was a life of prayer, it is rather fitting that his first of seven prayers was a prayer, isn't it? You know, his whole life was, was a life of prayer. And it wasn't for himself. I imagine if I was in his shoes, I would be praying for myself at that point in time, wouldn't you? Father, not forgive them. Father, help me. Please lessen the pain or just help me pass out right now and, you know, when I'm awake, I'll be in your presence. Whatever. I, would, I know I would have been all praying about myself, but he wasn't. He, he's the Lord. He's our Savior. He's our compassionate Savior. And he was not praying for himself. He was praying for others. He was doing exactly what he had taught his followers to do. He was praying for those who cursed him, such as the chief priest. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. He was praying for those who hated him and who despitefully used him and who were persecuting him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And because he repeated it over and over again, 
we can imagine that many people heard him. Who would have heard him? The soldiers, the Roman soldiers that were hammering the nails into his wrists and his feet. Uh, the centurion probably heard him. Do you think Simon the Cyrene would have heard him? Yes. Some of the chief priests. Remember, I told you that cross was not off at a distance. He was there with people all around him. He was not, he was not way up high. He was low. They would have heard him. Many people would have heard him say that. It was very unusual to hear a man say that, right? Dr. Her- uh, Herschel Ford, who was a well-known southern pastor for many years, gives us an idea of how the Lord's persistency in his prayer may have gone. He writes this, quote, when he arrived at Calvary, he looked around him and he prayed, Father, forgive them. When the soldiers nailed him upon the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. When the agony tore through his flesh, he prayed, Father, forgive them. When he was lifted up on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. When the soldiers divided his garments, he prayed, Father, forgive them. He says, we don't know how many times his petition pierced the heavens. End of quote. One thing was becoming very evident. Although Skull Hill had never known anything about forgiveness and grace and mercy and love, things there were beginning to change, weren't they? Did you know that among the many other things that were made unknown ahead of time by God, about the Messiah's passion on the cross, he also foretold that he would actually make prayerful intercession for transgressors at the time of his passion, at the time of his crucifixion. Where do we find that? Isaiah 53. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. We'll be going there quite a bit in the weeks to come. Isaiah 53, and I want you to look at verse... 12, all right? Isaiah 53, 12. This is Isaiah the prophet speaking by way of the Holy Spirit some 700 years before Christ even came to earth. It says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. I'm not going to translate that right now, but um, or, or talk about it. We will later. But go on, and it says, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. When did Jesus pour out his soul unto death? On the cross, okay. And he was numbered with the transgressors. When was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? On the cross, when he died with the two thieves. And he bare the sin of many. When did Jesus bear the sin of many? On the cross. And what else did he do on the cross? Look at it. And made intercession for the transgressors. That is not a reference to Christ's high priestly ministry, which is going on right now in the church age as he's in heaven and he is, you know, our great great high priest for, for believers. That's not a reference to that. This is a reference to the time when he was on the cross and he was making intercession for transgressors. So what's it a reference to? My Bible has it right. It has Luke 23, 34. When he prayed, for those who were persecuting him and hating him and despitefully using him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The prayer of the Lord was not a prayer of release for himself. He could have prayed, release me, I've changed my mind. But it wasn't a prayer for release for himself. It was a prayer for relief, relief for others. Forgive them. You know, even though he was pinned to a cross, he was fixed to that cross, he could not move, could he? Except for that up and down movement and his his mouth. That's about it. Everything else is, is nailed. So he can't use his hands to break bread and to multiply bread to feed multitudes of people. He can't use his hands anymore to touch the leper and cleanse the leper or touch people in compassion or say, uh, Tabitha, little girl, arise, you know, and all the, and make uh, spit 
you spit in clay and put it on a, a blind man's eyes. He can't use his hands anymore, can he? To minister to people. He can't use his feet because they're nailed to the cross. He can't walk to places and, and preach to people profound sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. He can't walk to people to minister to them. He can't walk to the leper colony. But there's one thing he could still do. He could still minister. And he, he ministered right up to the last minute. <coughs> what could... Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm still suffering from this thing. So you're not praying hard enough. <coughs> no, I'll be all right in a minute. <clears throat> I know it's not your prayers, it's my sin. <laughs> my husband keeps telling us, sin in your life, Catherine. All right. <clears throat> anyway, um, even if when we're, when we're, well, we can't hardly do anything to minister to others. Uh, like Diane, we were talking before, you know, she's suffering from a lot of pain. And praise the Lord, she's here today. But there's always one thing you can do, right? Pray. We can always pray and intercede on the behalf of others. And that's the greatest ministry of all, is praying for one another. And that's exactly what he was doing. He's still ministering to others. And what did he pray? Well, his prayer has to do with man's greatest need. What is man's greatest need? Now, he doesn't realize this, but what is his greatest need? Forgiveness, exactly. Do you realize that most people go out there, out there, go through their whole lives, never realizing that divine forgiveness is their greatest need? Why is it man's greatest need? Well, because without it, if, if you don't have divine forgiveness for your sins, you will spend eternity apart from God. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, that's all right. I'll be with all my friends and we'll just have a big party. Oh, my. You are so wrong. If you spend eternity apart from God, that means you spend eternity apart from everything that God is. What is God? God is love. You want to spend eternity apart from love? No love whatsoever? Do you want to spend eternity apart from light? God is light, isn't he? That's why hell is a place of utter darkness, because God isn't there. There's no light without God. Do you want to spend eternity without grace and mercy and kindness and long-suffering? All the things that God is? No, we don't. But man just doesn't realize that what he needs more than anything is divine forgiveness. Does our government or the government of other nations... Do, they, do you ever hear them mention forgiveness in all of their deliberations? Did we hear any of the speakers at the United Nations this last week? And I guess it's going on some this week. Did any of them get up there in their pulpit and talk about how we need, our nation needs forgiveness, the world needs forgiveness? Wouldn't that have been nice to hear? Do you think tomorrow night in the political debates we're going to hear either man talk about how this nation needs divine forgiveness? I'll tell you what, if either one of them said that, they'd get my vote. <laughs> That's what we need. This nation needs forgiveness more than anything. Wouldn't it be refreshing to hear something like that? Unfortunately, the world seems to think in general that money or the economy is man's greatest need. You know, and so every time there's a problem, what do they do? They throw more money at it, thinking that that's going to solve the problem. They think that's man's greatest need, need and that's going to solve everything. Money and education. Is that going to solve everything? No, no. Forgiveness. The Lord had it right. He prayed for forgiveness for sinful men in his first statement from the cross because he knew it is man's greatest need and it is the greatest need of the nations of this earth as well and it was exactly why he was allowing them to crucify him because he knew they needed forgiveness and there would be no way for them to ever be forgiven unless he died for them so that God could forgive them. Why is it that so much of the world, do you think, does not realize their need for forgiveness? Well, guess what? He gives us the answer to that question in the rest of his prayer. After he said, Father, forgive them, what did he say? For they know not what they do. There is an extremely serious danger in spiritual ignorance. It is eternally fatal. 
Now, he's not saying here that those who were crucifying him and those who were responsible for crucifying him were ignorant of the fact of his crucifixion. Duh, you know, that's obvious. <laughs> they, they knew full well that he was being nailed to a cross. They were observers and participants in all of that. So what was it that they did not know? They did not know the enormity of their crime of what they were doing. They did not realize that they were murdering the Lord of glory himself. God Almighty. They were, they were crucifying not only Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the whole world, but the creator of the universe. They did not realize who they were crucifying. There is no worse ignorance. Now, this is not a popular statement. If I was, I was, I thought about it. If I was running for a political office and they vetted me and they got my tapes and they took this one and made a, you know, a little, uh, advertisement on TV about it, they would repeat it over and over again and, you know, oh, you can't vote for her. She is worse than Sarah Palin. She is just out there. <laughs> well, here it is. I'm going to say it and I'm going to say it twice. <laughs> there is no worse ignorance than to be ignorant about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You agree? Thank you. I don't care if you have three PhDs behind your name. If you do, that's great. Okay? But I don't, I, I don't care if you have, you're fluent in seven languages. Again, if you are, that's wonderful. Help us all out. Okay? But if you have those things, those accomplishments, those skills, and you are deficient in your knowledge and in your understanding of who Jesus Christ is, then you are living in the worst ignorance possible. Period. You know, the prophet Daniel predicted about the latter days, and he said in the last days there would be a great increase in knowledge. Is there today? Yes, and I'm very thankful for that. I don't think I'd have any grandchildren if there wasn't a great increase in knowledge because all seven of our grandchildren had to be born by uh, C-sections. My daughters would have died giving birth. And I, my, my one little granddaughter who had eye surgery, I'm so glad for the increase in knowledge. Uh, Daniel was right. We have men and women today who are very smart in a lot of different areas. But unfortunately, so many of those very smart people are ignorant, tragically ignorant, of the most important person who ever lived. How sad that most people know more about the characters in Jersey Shore. What's her name? Spiky? Spinky? Come on, what's her name? Oh, I'm so glad you don't know. <laughs> I, I honestly have never watched it. But they know more about Hollywood stars, don't they? Uh, the younger generation, they just think, I'm just, oh man, I am just so ignorant about anybody that they mention. They say, you know, so-and-so. I said, who? <laughs> but they know more about Hollywood characters. They know more about sports figures. Uh, NASCAR drivers, um, political, yeah, political people, and what else? They, they know rock singers. I forgot that. You know, rock singers and musicians. They know more about those people than they know about the one who died for them. Mm. The crucifixion of the Son of God was the horrific outcome of spiritual ignorance. And what if he came back today? Same thing all over again. It would be. They would, because of spiritual ignorance, they would kill him again all over. All right, let's turn now to the Gospel of John, John 19, and look at the subject of the parting of the Lord's clothing. And there must be some significance to this because of the fact that all four Gospels mention it, which is interesting because, you know, all four Gospels don't always mention everything, but here they do. But we're going to read the account from John because he gives us the fullest account of all of the parting of the Lord's clothing. So look with me at John 19, starting at verse 23. 
All right, it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And now they didn't say this, the soldiers didn't say this, but John says this. John says that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now you might want to be working your way over to Psalm 22 while I continue to talk here. Um, What we have here now is the Lord... He's already been impaled on the cross. He's dying in the most humiliating and painful ways ever devised by the desperately wicked hearts of men. And yet, he is king. And he is reigning. He is dying the very death that was foreshadowed he would die in the Old Testament scriptures and that he himself predicted he would die during his earthly ministry. He was allowing men to kill him. He was willingly laying down his life. And he's even praying for those who are killing him. Correct? He has made sure that during the whole process of his death, not a single bone of his body would be broken so that he would fulfill the perfect type of the Passover lamb. That includes the bones in his wrists, the bones in his feet, and even after his death, the bones in his legs. His kingship is evident, isn't it? It's even evident in the little things that take place while he is hanging on the cross, on a tree, such as the Roman soldiers parting his garments. Now, one of the perks of the soldiers who were assigned to the grisly task of impaling a man to hang suspended on a cross was that they were allowed to take possession of the victim's clothing. It was called the law of inheritance of criminals' clothing. And it really wasn't that great of a perk. I mean, you know, Roman soldiers didn't make a whole lot of money, so this was one little perk of their job, but it wasn't that great because a crucifixion victim's clothing was seldom worth very much, especially after... They had been soiled and blood-stained from the scourging that preceded the crucifixion. It's really kind of sad to think about how callous these men were, but I guess if you crucified a number of people after a while, you would almost have to be callous, right? Or it would just kill you to, to see that over and over again. But I thought about how they had just witnessed a man a most unusual man, go through the whole process of being crucified. And he wasn't cursing at them. He refused the the, um, narcotic drug, didn't he? And he wasn't cursing them like everybody else would have been. He wasn't struggling. He wasn't trying to fight against them. He wasn't um, yelling, screaming, whatever the other guys did. The whole time, he's submissive. He he lets them do it. Um, And what is he doing? Praying for them. And even still, they part his garments. Very callous, you know. Now remember, there were how many Romans assigned to each crucifixion victim? How many? Four, right. Four Roman soldiers. And it was normal for a Jewish man to have five articles of clothing. They were an inner garment, like um, an inner tunic that would be just up against the skin. There would be a sash that they wore around that. That's two. They would have their sandals. We're going to count two sandals as one item of clothing because I don't think one soldier wanted one shoe and the other wanted... (laughs) So there'd be his sandals. And then there was a headpiece. And then the fifth piece of clothing was the outer coat. Okay? Now, the first four items that I mentioned were pretty equal in value, and the soldiers would have very little trouble in the distribution of those four um, first pieces, uh, one per soldier. You know, one guy got the shoes, one guy got the sash, one got the headpiece, and one got that inner tunic. But the item of controversy was what? 
right, the outer robe, because it was more valuable, much more valuable than the other pieces of clothing. Obviously, somewhere along the Lord's life, as in his adult life, some woman who, who greatly loved him and understood him, who he was, had painstakingly woven this garment in a very special way. She started from the neck, and in a circular fashion, she wove the garment all the way down to the feet so that it was seamless, and that made it very, very valuable. So, this is the item of controversy, and some speculate that that woman was who? Mary. We don't know. May have been Mary, his mother. May have been one of his sisters. May have been Mary of Bethany. I don't know who made it, but some woman made that for him. I doubt it was a man. (laughs) Anyway, the uh, seamless perfection of Christ's robe symbolized what? His own flawlessness, his own perfection. You know, it's so fitting to think back um, to Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas? He was the corrupt high priest of Israel at this time, the man most responsible for the Lord's crucifixion, right? He, He just defiled his holy office in many ways. Well, he, the high priest, also had a seamless robe. Remember when he would take off his outer garments and he would just enter into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement in a robe, it was that seamless robe that he would enter into the um, holy place, the most holy place. Well, remember when he rent his robe? When did he do that, the Caiaphas? In a great theatrical production. I mean, he was just acting like he was so pious that God had been blasphemed, and so he took his robe and he rent it? When did he do that? In one of the trials, when Jesus, the last trial, when Jesus, you know, he said he's committed blasphemy. What need have we of any more witnesses? You know, let's crucify him. Turn him over to Pilate. He had rent his robe in two, his seamless robe, even though that was against Levitical law. It specifically says in uh, Leviticus that the high priest was absolutely forbidden to ever rent his seamless robe. And yet Caiaphas had done it. What he did not realize is that he was graphically enacting the end of the need for the earthly high priesthood. The entire priesthood, in fact, was obsolete. Because the great high priest was here. You know, there was not going to be any more need for animal sacrifices. There wasn't going to be any more need for that whole ritual that they went through on every day of atonement. Why? Because that great high priest, once for all, sacrifice of himself on Calvary was now, now made it so that all who place their faith in him make up his royal priesthood. We are called a priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers. Uh oh. This is weird. Okay. All right. Maybe we should have brought them a new sound system instead of chairs. (laughs) Anyway, we are a priesthood of believers. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, I came from a religion where we had a priest. We couldn't go. You know, we had he had to intercede on our behalf. The churches. I'm sorry, but the churches that still have a priesthood, you're still in the Old Testament. Come on into the New Testament. You don't need a priesthood. We are priestesses. We can come boldly before the throne of God any day of the week, not just one day out of the whole year, any day of the the week and multiple times every day, can't we? Absolutely. You know, that that was graphically illustrated when Caiaphas rent his robe. No more need for the priesthood. And when did God graphically illustrate that same point? When Jesus died and the veil was rent from top to bottom, because God did it, not man, and the Holy of Holies was exposed to everyone who put their faith in his Son. It's marvelous. Oh, when that dawned on me one day when I was 22 years of old, what freedom, what joy, what, ah, it was, it's just marvelous. So I have a question. Is it not absolutely fascinating that although the high priestly robe of Caiaphas was torn, showing both the sinfulness of the man, 
Because he didn't deserve a seamless robe, did he? He was so sinful and corrupt and evil. Not only showed his sinfulness, but it also showed the divinely appointed end of Judaism's priesthood. So it's fascinating that he rent his robe, but God saw to it that the seamless robe of the true high priest was not torn. Now there is Jesus on the cross. If they had taken that wonderful robe and torn it in pieces, he couldn't have done a thing about it, right? But God, and he is God, they were seeing to it that that robe was not destroyed. The value of it was not destroyed, and the picture of it was not destroyed. The four four soldiers didn't know all this. You know, they decided that um, they would cast lots for this special garment rather than destroy its value by tearing it into four pieces. And if you take a garment like that and tear it into four pieces, it would it would have unraveled, you know. <laughs> it wouldn't have been worth anything. And when they made that decision, do you think that these guys had any idea whatsoever what was going on here? No, they didn't have a clue. They were just totally clueless. They had no more idea than when Caiaphas tore his robe. He didn't know that God was using his unlawful gesture any more than these four Gentile soldiers knew God was there using their decision not to tear Jesus' robe, but to cast lots for it instead. Not only was God using this uh, illustration, their decision to illustrate his, that his son is indeed the true sinless high priest of Israel and the great high priest of all the redeemed, but what else was he doing? Where are you? Did I tell you to go to Psalm 22? What else was he doing? He was fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy. These soldiers were fulfilling the Messiah's very words of um, Psalm 22. Now, I told you all to go there, and I forgot to go there. Let me get there quick. You know, and this was uh, a psalm written by, by David. When did David live? About a thousand years before Christ. And remember this, when David wrote this psalm, there was no such thing as crucifixion. It had never been invented. All right, now how do we know that Psalm 22 is messianic? Well, let's first of all start out by looking at the first verse. What do you read there? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sound familiar? When did we hear the Messiah say those words? Hmm, on the cross. Now look at verse uh, 18. It says, well, if you go through, you can see that so much of it is talking. We're going to be talking about verse 12, the bulls that encompassed him, the strong bulls of Bashan. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. That's what the hatred of the crowd around the cross. We're going to look at that next week. He says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. This is, you know, they're melted in the midst of my bowels. This is all describing how the Lord was suffering and how he was feeling while he was on the cross. His strength is dried up, etc., etc. But look down at verse um, 16. Well, let's go to 16. The dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. What did they do? They pierced my hands and my feet. Obviously, this is about the Messiah when he was crucified, right? Before crucifixion was ever heard of. And then the next verse is what we want to look at. Or, no, uh, verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. It is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating thing to work through the account of the crucifixion and discover the number of prophecies that were fulfilled and in such minute detail. And in some cases, they were prophecies that had to do with such seemingly trivial things, such as clothing, you know, and how they dealt with clothing. But Psalm 22 unquestionably contains messianic references. I want you to notice, here's what's really amazing. The word garments in that verse, is it plural or singular? Garments. Thank you, English teacher. (laughs) It's plural. Garments is plural, but the word vesture is what? 
singular. Okay, in other words, what David was saying a thousand years before Christ was even born was that when it came to the Messiah's garments, they would divide them among themselves. But when it came to a singular vesture, what would they do? Cast lots for it. Now tell me something. Did David just happen to write the exact words that Jesus would say from the cross when he wrote down, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did David just take a lucky guess that one day there would be people all around the Messiah and they would be mocking him and staring at him after they had pierced his hands and his feet? Was that just a lucky guess? And again, was David just writing a beautiful poetic song of his own making when he wrote, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture? Was he? No. And if you believe that, it, that he was, that this was just human luck or poetic song or mere coincidence, then you know what? You've been drinking too much cheap vinegar wine mixed with myrrh. Because you're in la-la land. You're spiritually ignorant. You are delusional. And that is exactly what I say, without batting my eyes, to all of those liberal preachers out there who deny the divine inspiration of the Holy Scripture. They are delusional. They are. They're absolutely delusional. God Almighty wrote the Old Testament scriptures so that men would know with absolute certainty his son when he came to earth. There's no reason we have to doubt who Jesus was. The Old Testament tells us and the New Testament tells us and this is God's book. Do you get that? How many times every week, every single week, we show you prophecy after prophecy that there's no way men could have done that. This is just one little prophecy out of many, isn't it? He didn't just take a guess and get it exactly right to the very details. This is God's book. And if you believe that, then what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Are you reading it? Are you, well, I know you're studying it because you're here. Are you saved? I hope so. And if not, stay after today. We'll delay the luncheon. That'd be great. Think about this. The Lord Jesus possessed five pieces of clothing, and one of them it was not wise to divide. There were how many soldiers? Four soldiers. If there had been five soldiers that day, what if Rome had decided to assign five soldiers to each crucifixion victim? Well, if there had been five soldiers, or if the centurion had decided to get in on this, Okay, think about that. He could have pulled rank, couldn't he? If he had done that, then who would have wound up with the robe, the seamless robe? Him. And you know what? There was a lot of value in that robe. Even though it was probably soiled and blood-stained, it was seamless. And who did it belong to? Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember a woman who just touched the hem of that garment and she was healed? Don't you think that they were thinking... Everybody knows who this Jesus is. A lot of people will pay a lot of money for this robe. You could put it on eBay and make a mint. I wonder who wound up with this robe and whatever happened to it. Don't you? I mean, that would be something somebody has written a book called The Robe. But anyway, um, he could, the, the centurion could have pulled rank. Well, what if there had been just three soldiers that day? Then there would have been a casting of lots over more than one garment. But there were four soldiers, there were four items that were parceled out equally, and there was one remaining, and that one they had to gamble over. And a thousand years uh, ahead of time, God, actually about a thousand and thirty-three years ahead of time, God the Holy Spirit prophesied through David of that kind of precise detail. So do any of us need to doubt who was in control of the events that day? Never, never, never. So when Jesus said, if any man 
will come after me. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Does that mean, do you think, that every event of our cross-bearing will also be just as directed by God? It does. A lot of you I know are carrying some heavy, heavy heavy-duty crosses. But God is just as much in control of every circumstance of your life as he was of his son's. You know, there was a previous time, and I want to see if anybody can think of this. They did yesterday, I was so proud of them, but there was a previous time in the Lord's life when Jesus laid aside his garments. When was that? Yes, yes. All right, these two smart ones right in front. (laughs) Who else got that right away? Thank you, thank you. They're always the first to speak up because they're on the front pew, but (laughs) we can hear you. I can hear you. Um, Yes, and it was just the day before. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Just the day before the crucifixion. It's in John 13, 4. It records that shocking moment in the midst of the Passover supper, you know, last Passover when the Lord was in the upper room with his men, and suddenly he stood up. And what did he do? He laid aside his garments, took up a towel, and washed the feet of his disciples. Why did he do that? Well, For one thing, it was to teach them a very much needed lesson on humility and Christian servanthood, but also it was a picture in anticipation of the cleansing work he was going to provide for his people. And now, for a second time in just two days, his garments are laid aside in the act of supreme humiliation as he actually did perform that cleansing work for his people. Well, let's turn now to something else about the crucifixion, because we're running out of time here. This was also important enough to have been recorded in all four Gospels, but again, go to John. I'm going to read about it from John, because again, John gives us more details. Why do you think that is? Well, he was there, too. He was the only one we know for sure that was there at the crucifixion. And so he gives us more details about these things, like the parting of the Lord's clothing and about the placard that was put above the Lord's head. So let's look at John 19, verses 19 to 22. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest, I'm in verse 21, then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. We're told over in Matthew 27, 36, I didn't take you there, but we are told that after the soldiers had finished dividing up the Lord's clothing, they sat down to watch him. It was going to be, or at least they thought it was going to be, a long day in the hot sun for them as they waited for their victim to die. They did not know that it wouldn't be as long as they thought because at noon, in just three hours, the sun would darken. It wouldn't be hot for three hours, and when the sun came out again, their victim would be dead. So now, anyway, our attention turns from those Roman soldiers who had been concerned only really about the spoils of the cross. We turn now to the Jews, whose great concern, now that they got what they wanted, now that Jesus was crucified, their concern is all about the superscription of the cross. (laughs) So the Romans were concerned about the spoils of the cross. The Jews were concerned about the superscription of the cross. There was only one there who was concerned about the souls around the cross, and that was the Savior of the cross. Well, it was the custom, as we mentioned earlier, um, when we were discussing the procession to Golgotha, it was the custom to inscribe the name and the crime of each crucifixion victim on a board or a placard. And it was called in Latin the titulus. You have a picture of it here, uh, an example of one. It was actually pretty long. It was about 24 inches long. Well, that's not that long, but tw- maybe about, is this about 24 inches? Maybe a little. Anyway, and it was 12 inches high, like a, uh, a ruler high. And, uh, and they, would, they would identify the name of the victim and then his crime. Like they would say, this is um, uh, 
Joshmo, I might as well use that, Joshmo, and his, underneath would be his crime, insurrection against Rome. It was to serve as a deterrent. You know, it was to serve to humiliate the person and his family because his name was out there. And then it was a, to be a deterrent to crime because if you saw, oh, he's, look, he's crucified because he was an insurrectionist. I never want to be an insurrectionist, so I'll obey the laws. Well, um, on Jesus' placard that was put above his head, the fullest wording of what it says is given to us by John. Really, Matthew, Mark, and Luke just give us the essence of what it said, but John gives us the fullest meaning, or fullestness of it, if that's a word, fullestness. And it said what? Jesus, Jesus is his personal name, of Nazareth, <clears throat> which would more fully identify him, because there were a lot of men named Jesus back in that day. So that more fully identifies him. And then it goes on to say what all the Gospels say, the king of the Jews. And that wording was given in how many languages? It was given in three languages. It was given in Hebrew, which was the language of God's law, and, of course, the language of the Jews, and this was taking place in Israel. It was uh, also written in Latin, which was the language of Roman law, and it would be the main language of the soldiers there. And it was written in Greek, which was the common language of that day, like uh, English is the universal language today. Greek was the universal language back then. And it had been ever since uh, Alexander the Great had conquered that whole area three centuries earlier. So it was, it was really showing us that Jesus is the savior of the whole world, right? Whether you speak Greek, Latin, or Roman, and, and many people back in that day were multilingual. Um, so, let's see, where am I? It, that kind of multilingual inscription was very common back then. It publicized for every spectrum of the populace the nature of the victim's crime. And as I told you, it was to be a deterrent to committing that particular crime. But isn't it interesting that in the uh, Lord's situation, what was his crime? Tell me what the crime is on that placard. Is there a crime listed? There is no crime listed. It just states who he is. You see what God was doing? This was testimony of Christ's innocence because there's no crime on there. Only truth is stated on that placard. It, it's, a, it's a testimony to his majesty and his dignity, his honor, his glory, his royalty. There's no crime. You know, it was not a crime to go around claiming to be the king of, the, of, of Israel. People would look at you like you were a lunatic, but um, it wasn't a crime worthy of crucifixion. And I don't think it really served its, its purpose in that I don't think a lot of people said, oh, I better not ever claim to be the king of Israel. <laughs> it's, uh, some people say that Pilate wrote the first gospel tract. And really, if you think about it, he did. And God saw to it that it was read by many people in that day because he saw to it that it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and uh, Greek. So that anybody passing by, and were there a lot of people passing by that day? Yes, because it was the Passover. There were several million people in town. A lot of people passing by. It was just right outside the city. And they were passing by there because there was a major gate there. And they would go by and they would look at that and they'd say, hmm, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And what do you th where did those people come from? all over the world. And when they would go back to their family and friends, they would say, you know, we read the most amazing thing. We saw this man crucified. Oh, it was horrible. You couldn't even tell he was a man. But above him it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? And people would say, oh, we heard about, you know, um, Jesus of Nazareth, because he was very well known. This was a gospel tract that just went all over the place, didn't it? Who else read that gospel tract? Simon the Cyrene? We know that one of the thieves did because we remember what he said to Jesus. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He saw he's a king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who else saw that gospel tract? Well, we know a Roman centurion did. And a lot of people did. That's fascinating how God works. This is where the account, you know, the conversation we had last year between 
Pilate and Jesus. And then Pilate, and when he would keep going in and out of the praetorium, Pilate and Jesus would talk, and then Pilate would go out and he would speak to the Jews. This is where it becomes very beneficial that we had studied all of that, because now we have the background for the words that Pilate had inscribed on that titulus, is what it's called in Latin, titulus, for title. What did he write? The king of the Jews. We know the politics behind that. We know and realize that Pilate really wasn't trying to mock Jesus. Who was he trying to mock? The Jews. He didn't hate Jesus at all. He kind of respected him. He was trying to mock the Jews, especially in light of their hypocritical, insincere proclamation when they said, we have no king but Caesar. They had embarrassed him in his own court, hadn't they, by using political leverage to blackmail him. And so what is he doing here? He's getting back at them. It was a jeering, derisive mockery of them to state as a fact this is written as a fact. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was, it was a mockery that this man, Jesus, who they hated and despised so much, who was from despicable Nazareth of Galilee, you know, everybody looked down their long noses at anybody from Nazareth, and who was now in such a submissive and humbling, uh, humiliating circumstance, not even looking like a man, much less a king. It was mockery of the Jews that this was their king the king of the Jews. It was his way of saying, look at him, your king. Remember when he had said that earlier after the scourging, when he was there in a crown of thorns and a scarlet robe, and he said, behold, your king? He did that mockingly too. He's saying, how fitting that one so lowly and so powerless is is your king, you Jews. Look how weak and broken he is. So it was a mockery. And of course, when the chief priests of the Jews saw what Pilate had written, they were absolutely furious, weren't they? You'd think they'd be calmed down by now. They finally got what they wanted, but no, they're furious. And they wanted him to change it so that it read that Jesus only claimed to be the king of the Jews, not that he really was the king of the Jews. But for the very first time, Pilate did not vacillate, did he? Too bad he didn't do this earlier. It was too little, too late. It was likely the only satisfaction that he derived from his entire ordeal with these stubborn people when he said, in response to their protest, what I have written, I have written. And why did he finally stand his ground, do you think? Who was really orchestrating all of that? Absolutely God. Pilate had written the truth. Isn't that amazing? He's the one who said, what is truth? Here, he he himself had written it. (laughs) He had written the truth, and it would stand. Isn't it fascinating when you think that the two men most responsible for the Lord's death, who were Caiaphas and Pilate, that those two men proclaimed the truth about him in spite of themselves? Caiaphas, who was the official representative of the Jews, had prophetically declared that Jesus should die or would die not only for the nation of Israel, but for all the children of God who were scattered abroad. And now, by his placard, which was written in three different languages, Pilate, who was the official representative of the Gentile world, declared Jesus to be the king of the Jews. It's just hilarious. I think God has such a great sense of humor. He uses Caiaphas, the Jewish representative, to say that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he uses Pilate, who is a representative of the Gentile world, to say that Jesus is the sovereign king, the Savior and the sovereign. Those men had no idea what they were doing, did they? But God did. And he overrules everything. He used his son's murderers to bring his son glory. In light of truth and in light of Old Testament prophecy, the account of the Lord's crucifixion, with its emphasis, amazingly, not on, not on the crucifixion. We didn't have any details about that, did we? But with its emphasis on the parting of his garments and the placard over his head, In light of this truth, and in light of Old Testament messianic prophecy being fulfilled by these little things, 
This should cause any careful, sensitive reader of Scripture to be acutely aware of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was no victim of human circumstances whatsoever, as Catherine likes to say over here. (laughs) Not at all. The problem with liberal theology is that it contains such subtle nuances of truth that oftentimes it is very difficult for us to recognize them for what they are. Sometimes they'll even, you have to be careful, they'll even use the same words we use. They'll talk about God, they'll talk about Christ, they'll talk about certain other words, you know, but they have different definitions for those words. You have to be careful. You have to say, how do you define Christ? How do you define justification or salvation? One of the greatest difficulties in in, um, dealing with theological error is in recognizing it in the first place, for seeing it uh, for what it really is, because it can be so close to the truth. You know, it has to be, or nobody would ever accept it. Satan is no dummy. I mean, he is crafty. He is subtle. He often appears as an angel of light. He's been at this for a long, long time. And he is not stupid enough to come forth and say, look, folks, I've got this great big volume that is just full of a whole variety of lies, and I want you to swallow it. He's not that stupid, is he? His trick is to come up with religions and theologies and philosophies that are a mixture of a good amount of truth in order to draw in the unsuspecting and just a sprinkling of poisonous error, often so subtly mixed together that you can hardly recognize the error or the real meaning of the words that are used. When you read the statements of theologians who are not entirely Bible-believing, their viewpoint of the presentation of the crucifixion is this, or, or this is one view. It's of an individual, a figure, a person, that being Jesus, who believes so strongly in what he taught that he was willing to die for it. Believes so strongly what he taught that he was willing to die for it. Hmm, sounds, sounds okay, right, first? Then you get to thinking about it. Something is missing I can think of people who believe so strongly in what they teach that they're willing to die for it, and they're blowing up other people at the same time. Or they'll come along and they'll say that it was about, you know, there was an individual who was just so filled with love for people that he was willing to allow them passively, because he loved them, to crucify him and even pray for them while they were crucifying him. Sounds kind of good too, right? But we've had a lot of people that are loving and they never talk bad about anybody. There was a man named Gandhi, you know, Mother Teresa, some good, good people too, right? Now to an unsuspecting reader, those things sound biblical. The problem is that it is just a small portion of the full truth. And because it leaves out the great thing, it is a poisonous, deadly distortion. What is the great thing? Who is that person who loved us so much he was willing to die for us? Who is that person who believed so much in what he taught because he knew he taught the truth? The son of very God, very God of very God, deity himself. And why did he come here? Here's what they're leaving out. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He literally took upon himself our iniquity. He bore our burden on the cross. It is only by his stripes that we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have every one of us turned to our own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did he come here? Just because he was a man of love, a good teacher, a good prophet? 
No, he came to die for our sins. God himself came to earth to die for our sins. You listen to any preacher, any teacher, pick up any book that doesn't mention sin, doesn't mention repentance, take it, put it away, burn it, throw it away, get rid of it. There is no salvation apart from understanding that we are sinners. Christ died for us. We need to repent of our sins and believe on him that he took our place. That's it. Simple. Even a child can understand it. But there's so much out there, ladies. That is tricky. You hear good, good mega churches and they talk about love and how to do this and how to do that and how to overcome this. And, and if you never hear sin and repentance, beware. The salvation that I so enjoy this morning, so enjoy, so comforting to know that when I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. And the salvation I hope that everyone in here enjoys this morning is only because of what took place that Passover day. In precise fulfillment of the scripture, under the sovereign control of God Almighty. Do you know that? That is truth. So then, what have we to fear? What have we to dread? Our God reigns. No matter what is going on in this topsy-turvy world. Our God still sits on the throne and he reigns and he was even reigning during the moments when they were doing the very worst to him. When cruel hands crucified him and when his blood was flowing and when his body was lacerated and broken and when they hung a placard above his head and when they parted and gambled over his only possessions, guess what? He was reigning and scripture was being fulfilled. And the scripture is being fulfilled in our lives as well. No matter what the pain, no matter what the tears, no matter the silence in the night, when all is quiet and there you are, alone in bed, and the tears begin to flow, the sorrow that only you know, we all have it, don't we? I have sorrows that I would never share with anybody. Heartaches that I would never share with even my closest of friends. I have sorrows I would never even share with my husband. Do you know that? We all have our private sorrows. The sense of desertion that you may feel in your heart. You can know, you can know with full assurance that he, God, Christ, is just as much in control of your cross-bearing as he was of his own. And here's the good news. If you know him as your sovereign savior, you are going to arrive safely home in glory. He's the anchor. The anchor's already parked in heaven. What follows the anchor? The ship. (laughs) You're going to arrive safely home. And it is all because of what took place at the, that day at the place of the skull. Aren't you thankful? I hope you are. Father, thank you for our time here together this morning. Thank you for that magnificent, gracious event when your son bore his cross and humbled himself and was obedient unto you, to you unto death. Thank you for that. And Father, as we are dismissed, I ask that these words and thoughts that we have discussed here this morning would not be easily snatched from our hearts. Because we know the wicked one and his emissaries would so quickly snatch them from our hearts as we leave here and and fill us again with doubts and wavering and tears. We ask that you would bring these words and this assurance to our our minds um, every day, every day, every night as we fall asleep and just put our whole lives and trust into you. May we feed on these truths to the nourishing of our inner man. And may we thank you for even the grace to be able to do that. And now we ask that you would send us to our homes with joy unspeakable, with peace that passes all understanding living in this tumultuous world, with security and with great confidence in you because of what your son did entirely apart from us and anything we could ever do to deserve eternal life. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.